irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. The Sapphire Planet. The nineteen sixty four New York's World Fair was the third major World's Fair to be held in New York City. Hailing itself as a universal and international exposition. The fair's theme was peace through understanding, dedicated to man's achievement on a shrinking globe in an expanding universe. American companies dominated the exposition as exhibitors. The theme was symbolized by a 12-story-high stainless steel model of the Earth called the Unisphere. The fair ran for two six-month seasons, April 22nd through October 18, 1964, and then again April 21st through October 17, 1965. Admission price for adults, 13 and older, was $2 in 1964, which is about $15 in 2015 dollars. But two fifty in 1965, and was $1 for children, 2 through 12, both years, which averages about $7 in today's dollars. The fair is best remembered as a showcase of the mid-20th century American culture and technology. The nascent space age with its vista of promise as well represented. More than 51 million people attended the fair, Then, though this was fewer than the hoped for 70 million. It remains a touchstone for New York area baby boomers who visited the optimistic fair as children before the turbulent years of the Vietnam War 
cultural changes, and increasing struggle for civil rights. In many ways, the fair symbolized a grand consumer show, covering many products produced in America at the time for transportation, living, and consumer electronic needs in a way that would never be repeated at a Futures World Fair in North America. Most American companies, from pen manufacturers to auto companies, had a major presence. While this did, this fair did not receive official sanctioning from the Bureau of International Exhibitions, otherwise known as the BIE, it did give many attendees their first interactions with computer equipment. Many corporations demonstrated the use of the mainframe computers, computer terminals with keyboards, and CRT displays. Teletype machines, punch cards, and telephone modems in an era when computer equipment was kept in back offices away from the public, decades before the internet and home computers were at everyone's disposal. The site, Flushing Meadows Corona Park, in the borough of Queens, had also helped the 1939-1940 New York World's Fair. It was one of the largest World's Fair to be held in the United States, occupying nearly a square mile, or two and a half kilometers, of land. The 1939 fair also occupied space that was filled in for the 1964-65 exposition. Preceding these fairs was the 1853-1854 New York's World Fair called the Exhibition of the Industry of All Nations, located in the New York Crystal Palace on what is now Bryant Park in the borough of Manhattan, New York City. All three of New York's World Fairs were the only international expositions to run for two years, rather than one. But the 1964 World's Fair had controversial beginnings. The 1964-65 Fair was conceived by a group of New York businessmen who fondly remembered their childhood experiences at the 1939 New York World's Fair and wanted to provide that same experience for their children and grandchildren. Thoughts of an economic boom to the city as a result of increased tourism was also a major reason for holding another fair 25 years years after the 1939-1940 extravaganza. Then-New York City Mayor Robert F. Wagner, Jr. commissioned Frederick Pintera, a producer of international fairs and exhibits, and author of the History of International Fairs and Exhibits for the Encyclopedia Britannica and Compton's Encyclopedia, to prepare the first feasibility studies for the 64 New York World's Fair. 
He was joined by Austrian architect Victor Grun, who all the way, also by the way, was the creator of the shopping mall. In studies that eventually led the Eisenhower Commission to award the World's Fair to New York City in a competition with a number of American cities. Organizers turned to private funding and the sale of bonds to pay the huge cost to stage them. The organizers hired New York's master builder, Robert Moses, to head the corporation established to run the fair because he was experienced in raising money for vast public projects. Moses had been a formidable figure in the city since coming to power in the 1930s. He was responsible for much of the construction of the city's highway infrastructure and, as parks commissioner, for decades the creation of much of the city's park system. In the mid-1930s, Moses oversaw conversion of a vast Queens tidal marsh slash garbage dump into the fairgrounds that hosted the 1939 World Fair. Called Flushing Meadows Park, it was Moses's grandest park scheme. He envisioned this park comprising some 1,300 acres or five kilometers of land easily accessible from Manhattan as a major recreational playground for New Yorkers. When the 1939 World's Fair ended in financial failure, Moses did not have the available funds to complete work on his project. He saw the 1964 fair as a means to finish what the earlier fair had failed to begun. To ensure profits to complete the park, fair organizers knew they would have to maximize receipts. An attendance of 70 million people would be needed to turn a profit and, for attendance that large, the fair would need to be held for two years. The World's Fair Corporation also decided to charge site rental fees to all exhibitors who wished to construct pavilions on the ground. This decision caused the fair to come in conflict with the Bureau of International Expositions, or the BIE, the international body headquarters in Paris that sanctions world fairs. BIE rules stated that an international exposition could run for one six-month period only, and no rent could be charged to exhibitors. In addition, the rules allowed only one exposition in any given country within a 10-year period, and the Seattle World's Fair had already been sanctioned for 1962. The United States was not a member of the BIE at the time, but fair organizers understood that a sanction by the BIE would assure at least nearly 40 member nations would participate in the fair. Moses, undaunted by the rules, journeyed to Paris to seek official approval for the New York Fair. When the BIE balked at New York's bid, Moses, used to having his way in New York City, angered the BIE delegates by taking his case to the press, 
publicly stating his disdain for the BIE and its rules. The BIE retaliated by formally requesting its member nations not to participate in the New York's fair. The 1939 and 1964 New York's World Fairs were the only significant World Fairs since the formation of the BIE to be held without its endorsement. Many of the pavilions were built in a mid-century modern style that was heavily influenced by Gogi architecture. This was a futurist architectural style influenced by car culture, jet aircraft, the space age, and the atomic age, which were all on display at the fair. Some pavilions were explicitly shaped like the product they were promoting, such as the U.S. Royal tire-shaped Ferris wheel, or even the corporate logo, such as the Johnson Wax Pavilion. Other pavilions were more abstract representations, such as the prolate spheroid shape IBM Pavilion, or the General Electric circular dome-shaped Carousel of Progress. The pavilion architecture often expressed a newfound freedom of form enabled by modern building materials such as reinforced concrete, fiberglass, plastic, tempered glass, and stainless steel. The facade, or the entire structure of a pavilion, served as a giant billboard advertising the country or organizations housed inside, flamboyantly competing for the attention of busy and and distracted fairgoers. By contrast, some of the smaller international U.S. state and organizational pavilions were built in a more traditional style, such as the Swiss Chalet or the Chinese Temple. After the fair's final closing in 1965, some pavilions crafted of wood were carefully disassembled and transported elsewhere for reuse. Other pavilions were decorated sheds, a building method later described by Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown using plain structural shells embellished with applied decorations. This allowed designers to simulate a traditional style while bypassing expensive and time-consuming methods of traditional construction. The expedient was considered acceptable for temporary building planned to be used for only two years, and then to be demolished. The BIE rejection was nearly a disaster for the fair. The absence of Canada, Australia, most of the major European nations, and the Soviet Union, all members of the BIE, tarnished the image of the fair. Additionally, New York was forced to compete with both Seattle and Montreal, for international participants, with many nations choosing the officially sanctioned World's Fair of those cities over New York's fair. The fair turned to trade and tourism organizations within many countries to sponsor national exhibits in lieu of official government sponsorship of pavilions. New York City, in the middle of the 20th century, 
was at the zenith of its economic power and world prestige. Unconcerned by BIE rules, nations with smaller economies, as well as private groups in or relevant to some BIE members, saw it as an honor to host an exhibit at the fair. Therefore, smaller nations made up the majority of the international participation. Nations such as Spain, Vatican City, Japan, Mexico, Sweden, Austria, Denmark, Thailand, Philippines, Greece, and Pakistan, and Ireland, to name a few, hosted national presences at the fair. Indonesia and had sponsored a pavilion, but relations deteriorated rapidly between that nation and the U.S. during the 1964 fueled by anti-Western, anti-American rhetoric and policies by Indonesian President Sukarno, which angered U.S. President Lyndon Johnson. Indonesia withdrew from the United Nations in January 1965, and officially from the fair in March of 1965. The fair corporation then seized and shut down the Indonesian pavilion, and it remained closed and barricaded for the rest of the 1965 season. One of the fair's most popular exhibits was the Vatican's pavilion, where, unbelievably, the Michelangelo's Pietà was displayed, and brought in from St. Peter's Basilica with the permission of Pope John XXIII. Amazing. A small plaza, a monument marking the spot, and of the spot of Pope Paul VI visits in October 1965, remains there today. I don't think we could get anyone to move the Pietà today. A modern copy replica has been transported beforehand to ensure that the statue could be conveyed without being damaged. This copy is now on view at St. Joseph's Seminary, Dunwoody and Yonkers. A recreation of medieval Belgian village proved to be very popular fairgoers retreated to the Belgium Brussels waffle, a combination of waffle, strawberries, and whipped cream sold by a Brussels company, Maurice Vermisch and his wife. Fairgoers could also enjoy sampling sandwiches from around the world at the popular 7-Up International Gardens Pavilion which featured the innovative fiberglass 7-Up Tower. While dining, visitors were treated to live performances of international music by the 7-Up Continental Band, as well as musical selections from the Broadway stage. Emerging African nations displayed their wares in the African Pavilion. Controversy broke out when the Jordanian Pavilion displayed a mural emphasizing the plight of the Palestinian people. The Jordanians also donated an ancient column, which remains at their former site in Flushing Meadows. 
the city of West Berlin, a Cold War hotspot, hosted a popular display. Now on to the individual pavilions. The U.S. pavilion was titled Challenge to Greatness and focused on President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society proposals. The main show in the multi-million dollar pavilion was a 15-minute ride through a film presentation of American history. Visitors seated in moving grandstands rode past movie screens that slid in and out over the path of the traveling audience. Elsewhere, there were tributes to President John F. Kennedy, who had broken ground for the pavilion in December 1962, but had been assassinated in November 1963 before the fair opened. The United States Space Park, a two-acre or 8,000-meter square foot United States space park was sponsored by NASA, the Department of Defense, and the fair. Exhibits included a full-scale model of the aft skirt and five F-1 engines of the first stage of a Saturn V, a Titan II booster with a Gemini capsule, and an Atlas with a Mercury capsule, and a Thor Delta rocket. On display at ground levels were Aurora 7, the Mercury capsule flown on the second U.S. manned orbital flight, a full-scale model of an X-15 aircraft, an Agena upper stage, a Gemini spacecraft, an Apollo command service module, and a lunar excursion module. Replicas of unmanned spacecraft include Lunar Probe Ranger 7, Mariner 2, and Mariner 4. SINCOM, Telstar 1, and ECHO 2 communication satellites, Explorer 1 and Explorer 16, and Titros and Numbus weather satellites. The New York State Fair played host to a fair at its $6 million open-air pavilion called the Tent of Tomorrow. The New York State Pavilion was designed by famous modern architect Philip Johnson. The 350-foot by 250-foot pavilion was supported by 16 100-foot-high concrete columns from which a 50,000-square-foot roof of polychrome tiles was suspended. Complementing the pavilion were the fair's three high-spot observation towers, two of which would have cafeterias in their in-the-round observation deck crowns. The pavilion's main floor, used for local art and industry displays, include a 26-foot scale reproduction of the New York State's Power Authority's St. Lawrence Hydroelectric Plant, comprised of 9,000-square-foot terrazzo replica of the official Texaco Highway Map of New York State, displaying the map's cities, towns, routes, and Texaco gas stations in a 567 mosaic, mosaic panels. 
An idea floated after the fair to use a floor for the World Trade Center did not materialize. The fair was held in New York in honor of the 300th anniversary of the naming of New York when King Charles II sent an English fleet to reclaim it from the Dutch in 1664. Prince James, the Duke of York, named it New York from its original name of New Amsterdam. There were other state pavilions. Wisconsin exhibited the world's largest cheese. Florida brought a dolphin show, flamingos, a talented cockatoo from Miami's Parrot Jungle, and water skiers to New York. Oklahoma gave weary Farragos a restful park to relax in. Missouri displayed the state's special space-related industries. Visitors could dine at Hawaii's Five Volcanoes restaurant. The New York City Pavilion. At the New York City Pavilion, the panorama of the city of New York, a huge-scale model of the city, was on display, complete with a simulated helicopter ride around the metropolis for easy viewing. Left over from the 1939 fair, this building had also hosted the United Nations from 1947 to 1952, and prior to 1947, it was used partially as a recreational building, roller skating rink, if you can believe that. Quite the upgrade from a roller rink to the United Nations. Louisiana had a pavilion called Louisiana's Bourbon Street, later renamed just Bourbon Street, which was inspired by New Orleans' French Quarter. It started off with financial trouble, not being able to complete its construction and subsequently filing for bankruptcy. A private company called Pavilion Property bought up the assets and assumed its debt. This prompted Louisiana Governor John McKeithen to sever all ties and withdraw state sanction, leaving the pavilion completely to private enterprise. Special media attention was given to all pavilions. The pavilions also included 10 theater restaurants, which served a variety of Creole food, a jazz club called Jazzland, which hosted live jazz artists, miniature Mardi Gras parades, a teenage dance venue, a voodoo shop, and a doll museum. Due to the presence of various bars, the pavilion was especially popular at night. Notable go-go dancer Candy Johnson headlined a show at the venue called Gay New Orleans Nightclub. Near the closure of the fair, the pavilion was reported to have achieved the highest gross income of any single commercial pavilion at the fair. The 26-year-old director of operations, Gordon Noble, was called an entrepreneurial prodigy and boy wonder in Variety magazine for his accomplishments. American industry was also in the spotlight. The General Motors Pavilion. At the New York World's Fair of 1939, Industrial exhibitors played a major role by hosting huge, elaborate exhibits. 
Many of them returned to the New York World's Fair in 1964 with even more elaborate versions of shows they had presented 25 years earlier. The most notable of these was the General Motors Corporation, whose Futurama, a show in which visitors seated in moving chairs, glided past elaborately detailed miniature 3D model scenery, showing what life might be like in the near future. Proved to be the fair's most popular exhibit. Nearly 26 million people took the journey into the future during the fair's two-year run. The IBM Pavilion The IBM Corporation had a popular pavilion where a giant 500-seat grandstand called the People's Wall was pushed by hydraulic rams high up into Lipsoil Theater designed by Ario Saarinen. There, a film by Charles and Ray Ames titled Think was shown on 14 large and 8 small screens, illuminating the workings of computer logic. At ground level, beneath the theater, visitors could explore Mathematica, a world of numbers, and beyond an exhibit of mathematical models and curiosities, and view the Mathematica's Peep Show, a series of short films illustrating basic mathematical concepts. IBM also demonstrated handwriting recognition on a mainframe computer that would look up what happened on a particular date that a person wrote down. For many visitors, this was their first hands-on interaction with a computer. The Bell System Pavilion. The Bell System, prior to its breakup into regional companies, hosted a 15-minute ride in moving armchairs, dis- depicting the history of communication and dioramas in film. Other Bell exhibits included the picture phone, as well as a demonstration of the computer modem. DuPont presented a musical review by composer Michael Brown called The Wonderful World of Chemistry. At Parker's pen exhibit, a computer would make a match to an international pen pal. Westinghouse had a pavilion. The Westinghouse Corporation planted a second time capsule next to the 1939 one. Today, both Westinghouse time capsules are marked by a monument southwest of the Unisphere, which is to be opened in the year 6939. Some of its contents were a World's Fair guidebook, an electric toothbrush, credit cards, which were relatively new at the time, and a 50-star United States flag. The Sinclair Oil Corporation sponsored Dinoland, featuring life-size replicas of nine different dinosaurs, including the corporation's signature Brontosaurus. The statues were created by Lewis Paul Jonas Studios in Mahapak, New York. Believe it or not, the Ford Motor Company introduced the Ford Mustang automobile to the public at its pavilion on April 17, 1964. Who knew the Ford Mustang would become the most popular car in the Ford 
stable. The Chunky Candy Corporation put on what was then a state-of-the-art transparent display of candy manufacturing in full sight of visitors, where they were able to view all the steps in a highly automated process. The pavilions also included interactive sculpture playgrounds, sculpture continuum designed by Oliver O'Connor Barrett. The individual sculptures were assembled in a particular array so that peepholes in the pieces provided sight lines that resulted in composition forms becoming visible to the viewer. The Fair was also a showplace for independent films. One of the most noted was a religious film titled Parable, which was shown at the Protestant Pavilion. It depicted humanity as a traveling circus and Christ as a clown. This marked the beginning of a new depiction of Jesus and was the inspiration for the musical Godspell. Parable later went on to be honored at Cannes, as well as the Edinburgh Film Festival and Venice Film Festival. Another religious film was presented by the evangelist Billy Graham, who, incidentally, had sponsored his own pavilion, called Man in the Fifth Dimension, which was shot in the 70mm Todd A.O. widescreen process for exclusive presentation in a specially designed theater equipped with audio equipment that enabled viewers to listen to the film in Chinese, French, German, Japanese, Russian, and Spanish. The 13 and one half minute film Man's Search for Happiness was made for the Mormon Pavilion and was shown within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for decades. The surprise hit of the fair was a non-commercial movie short presented by the S.C. Johnson Company to called To Be Alive. The film celebrated the joy of life found worldwide in all cultures, and it would later win a special award from the New York Film Critics Circle and an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject. And of course, there was Walt Disney and the Disney influence. The fair is also remembered as the venue Walt Disney used to design and perfect his system of audio animatronics, in which a combination of electromechanical actuaries and computers controls the movements of lifelike robots to act out scenes. WED Enterprises designed and created four shows at the fair. The first one, in Pepsi Presents Walt Disney's It's a Small World, a salute to UNICEF and the world's children at the Pepsi Pavilion. Animated dolls and animals frolicked in a spirit of international unity, accompanying a boat ride around the world. The song was written by the Sherman Brothers. Each of the animated dolls had an identical face, originally designed by New York Valley Stream artist Gregory S. Marinello in partnership with Walt Disney himself. 
The second pavilion Disney built was the General Electric-sponsored Progress Land, where an audience was seated in a revolving auditorium known as the Carousel of Progress, viewed an audio-animatronic presentation of the progress of electricity in the home. The Sherman Brothers, once again, it was their song, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, was comprised for this attraction. The highlight of the exhibit demonstrated a brief plasma explosion of a controlled nuclear fission. The crowd-pleasing loud crack that was produced could be heard even on the line outside the neighboring Traveler's Insurance Pavilion. The third pavilion Disney worked for was the Ford Motor Company presented Ford's Magic Skyways, a wed imagineering designed pavilion, which was the second most popular exhibit at the fair. It featured 50 actual motorless convertible Ford vehicles, including Ford Mustangs. In the early prototype of what became the People Mover ride system at Disneyland, audience members entered the vehicles on a main platform as they moved slowly along the track. The ride moved the audience through the scenes featuring life-size audio-animatronic dinosaurs and cavemen. Walt Disney Productions had earlier been asked by General Motors to produce their exhibit, which also featured a similar ride and diorama. But Walt had decided not to take this job. And finally, at the Illinois Pavilion, a lifelike President Abraham Lincoln, voiced by Royal Dano, recited his famous speeches in great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And that animatronic ended up at Disneyland also. After the fair, there was some discussion of the Disney Company retaining these exhibits on site and converting Flushing Meadows Park into an East Coast version of Disneyland. But, for whatever reason, this idea was abandoned. Instead, Disney relocated several of these exhibits to Disneyland in Anaheim, California, and subsequently replicated them at other Disney theme parks. Today, Walt Disney's World in Orlando, Florida, is essentially the realization of the original concept of an East Coast Disneyland, with Epcot Center designed as a permanent World's Fair. All four attractions from 1964 are still represented in one way or another. Two attractions from the fair are relatively unchanged, including a replica of It's a Small World, and the original, albeit updated, Carousel of Progress. Versions of It's a Small World are an attraction at all five Disney Magic Kingdom-style parks around the world, and it's the same song is among the most widely known on the planet. The two remaining attractions exist as evolutions of their originals. The dinosaurs from the Ford's Magic Skyway became the Disneyland Railroad's primeval world diorama, and the motorized tires embedded in the tracks 
which propelled and regulated the speed of ride vehicles, inspired Disneyland's People Mover, and later the the Tomorrowland's Transit Authority of Walt Disney World's Resort's Magic Kingdom. Currently, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln was expanded into the Hall of Presidents. Meanwhile, Disneyland still hosts the original It's a Small World and Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, transferred from New York, as well as the now unused track of the original Disneyland People Mover based on the Ford's Magic Skyway. The original Carousel Progress was first moved to Disneyland in 1967 and then to its current home at the Florida Magic Kingdom in 1973. Disney later used technologies developed for the fair to create the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. Epcot Center's original attractions borrowed heavily from the audio-animatronic advances of the fair and its general design guidelines. One of the fair's major crowd-attracting and financial shortcomings was the absence of a midway. The fair's organizers were opposed, on principle, to the honky-tonk atmosphere engaged by midways, and this was another thing that irked the BIE, which insisted that all officially sanctioned fairs have a midway. What amusements the fairs actually had ended up being largely dull. The Meadow Lake amusement area was not easily accessible, and officials objected to shows being advertised. Furthermore, Although the amusement area was supposed to remain open for four hours after the exhibits closed at 10 p.m., the fair presented a fountain and fireworks show every night at 9 p.m. at the Pool of Industry. The fairgoers would see this show and then leave the fair rather than head to the amusement area. One was hard-pressed to see anyone on the fairgrounds by midnight. The fair's big entertainment spectacle, spectacles, including Wonder World at the Meadow Lake Amphitheater, to Broadway with Love in the Texas Pavilion, and Dick Button's Ice Extravaganza in the New York City Pavilion, all closed ahead of schedule with heavy losses. It became apparent that fairgoers did not go to the fair for its entertainment value, especially as there was plenty of entertainment in Manhattan. The notable exception was the situation was the Dolls of Paris, an adults-only musical puppet show created, produced, and directed by Sid and Marty Croft. This show, modeled after the Paris Reviews, Lido and Follies Bougère, was heavily attended and financially successful. The fair, alas, ended in controversy over allegations of financial mismanagement. Controversy had plagued it during much of its two-year run. The Fair Corporation had taken in millions of dollars in advance ticket sales for both the 64 and 65 season. However, the receipts of these sales were booked entirely against the first season of the Fair. This made it appear that the Fair had plenty of operating cash when, in fact, it was borrowing from the second season's gates to pay the bills. Before and during the 64 season, 
The fair spent much money despite attendance that was below expectation. By the end of the 1964 season, Moses and the press began to realize that there would not be enough money to pay the bills, and the fair teetered on bankruptcy. In March 1965, a group of bankers and politicians asked showman Billy Rose to take over the fair, which he declined, stating, I'd rather be hit by a baseball bat. While the 1939 New York's World Fair returned 40 cents on the dollar to bond investors, the 1964 fair returned only 19 cents on the dollar. New York City was left with a much-improved Flushing Meadows Park following the fair, taking possession of the park from the Fair Corporation in 1967. Today, it is heavily used for both walking and recreation. The paths and their names remain almost unchanged from the days of the fair. At the center of the park stands the symbol of man's achievements on shrinking globe and an expanding universe, the fair's unisphere symbol depicting our Earth of the Space Age. The Unisphere was made famous again in 1997 when it was featured in the film Men in Black. Oh, by the way, in the film, the Unisphere is destroyed by a crashing spaceship. The Unisphere has become a symbol of Queens and has appeared on the cover of the borough's telephone directory books. The city has also inherited a multi-million dollar science museum and space park, exhibiting the rockets and vehicle used in America's early space exploration project. The space park deteriorated due to neglect, but in 2004, the surviving rockets were restored and placed back on display. The outdoor exhibit is now part of the expanded New York Hall of Science, a portion of which whose building is also a remnant of the fair. The carousel that was the centerpiece of the carousel park in the lake amusement area, which was previously two carousels from Coney Island that were somehow merged together and for the fair, was recloated, relocated to the former transportation area outside of the Queen's Zoo in the park, where it still operates today. Both the New York State Pavilion and the United States Pavilion were retained for future use. No reuse was ever found for the U.S. Pavilion, however, and it became severely deteriorated and vandalized. The U.S. Pavilion building was ultimately and sadly demolished in 1977. The New York State Pavilion found no residual use after other TV movies and movie sets, such as an episode of McLeod. For The Wiz and part of a setting and the plot for Men in Black. In the decades after the fair closed, it remained an abandoned and badly neglected relic, with its roof gone and the once bright floors and walls almost faded away. Once the red ceiling tiles were removed from the pavilion in the late 1970s for safety, safety reasons, the Texaco Terrazzo floor map of New York State was subject to the elements of weather and was ruined. In 1994, the Queen's Theatre took over the Circarama adjacent to the towers and continues to operate there, using the ruined State Pavilion as a storage depot. Some conservation and restoration efforts 
were demonstrated in 2008 by research from the University of Pennsylvania and by a handful of local groups advocated for funds to complete the floor's restoration. The New York State Pavilion was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 2009. In the fall of 2013, New York City Department of Park and Recreation announced plans to restore the pavilion with new landscape paths and event spaces at an estimated cost of $73 million, as opposed to the $14 million cost to demolish the structure. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.